everyone, it's Caleb. I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Dr. Tim Elmore and talk with him uh, a lot about his brand new book, which is out called The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, Embracing the Conflicting Demands of Today's Workplace. And so we got a chance to have a really fun conversation, which... Uh, I'm going to bring you here in a few minutes, but if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I kind of want i want to tell you about uh, two things that really drive the podcast, these two core beliefs, and it's this, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because there are just, there are some people in life that you can talk about maybe anything with, and then there's some people in life that you can't talk about anything with this person, uh, or not, anything is too strong of a word, but you can't talk about everything with this person because of maybe you're afraid of the response that you're going to get or you're afraid of being judged or or you're afraid of there being a break in the relationship if you decide to bring up the thing or whatever it might be. And so that's what we like to talk about here on the podcast is the things that maybe you're afraid to talk about with other people or learn from other people or ask questions about different things in that. Well, we ask the questions and we ask the things in that and here on on the podcast. And so we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And the second thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, from everything and from uh, anything. And that we don't have to agree with someone 100% in order to um, in order to learn from them. That we can have bits and pieces to where we disagree. And, it, and we can still learn from them. And that sometimes, and that also the person doesn't have to be perfect in order for us to learn from them as well, is that there's plenty of people that we can learn from them about what they got right. And then there's people that we can learn from what they got wrong about and where they failed and where they made mistakes and what they could have done better. And, and in some cases, you know, learning from them that maybe the thing that they were chasing after wasn't the thing that was most important to them. And learning about the things that really matter in life. I mean, that's something that uh, that I'm trying to figure out and explore in life as well. What what type of life do I want to live? And just learning from the people who have maybe found the life that they want to live and what led them to do that. What helped them figure all of that out? But regardless, we <laughs> it all comes down to is we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, and we want to create a place to where we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything. And today, the person that we're going to be learning from is Dr. Tim Elmore. And we're going to talk with him about his brand new book. But if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you have something that you would love us to cover on the podcast or you have a question that you would love to be asked, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to do that or the best way to reach out to me is through the email learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you on any feedback or topics or or resources that you would love um, to recommend here on the podcast as well. And then we can uh, talk about it at a later episode also. Now, as I mentioned today, I am talking with Dr. Tim Elmore. And this conversation, I was so excited um, whenever I got the notification about this book and getting a chance and I've read through uh, read through all of it. And it's just such a fascinating conversation because he does such a good job of diving into the kind of the gray or that, that may not even be the right word to it, 
but um, he dives into it because there, there's so many things. And, he, and, you know, we talk about it in the podcast as well, is uh, there's extremes on both ends in leadership and a lot of different things in life. And the answer isn't always, isn't, the answer is never choosing one extreme. It's usually finding a balance somewhere in the middle. And sometimes you lean this way and the other times you lean that way. And, and, and a lot of things, you just have to figure that stuff out. And so that's why I love this book is because it dives into the messiness. It dives into the grayness and the not easy answers of it. And so without any further wait, we're going to dive into the conversation and, and all of the, the messiness that comes with embracing the tension of what he writes about with uh, the eight paradoxes of great leadership. But before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about Tim. Dr. Tim Elmore is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders. His work grew out of 20 years of serving alongside Dr. John C. Maxwell. Tim has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, and he's been featured in CNN's Headline News and Fox & Friends. He has written over 35 books, including Habitudes, Images That Form Leadership Habits and Attitudes. And he's done a lot of work with understanding Gen Z as well and how to lead them as well. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Dr. Tim Elmore. Well, Tim, I am so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the things that I love asking people whenever they've come out with, you know, brand new books or resources or anything like that is what's the story behind what led you to want to, you know, release this book or work on this book? And so just as we're getting started, I would love uh, just to hear how you first, you know, got introduced to this idea of paradoxes and and leadership and what made you want to write about it. You know, Caleb, that's a great question. I didn't plan on writing another book here, but there were two triggers, I think, that were real for this one. One started in a green room. It was I was at a conference. I was going to be one of the speakers, and there were 16 of us, all CEOs, in the back room, the green room, and I decided to turn it into an instant focus group. So I got their attention, and I said, can I ask you all a question? I said, do you think leading today is harder than it was that when you first learned to lead? And every one of them to a person said, absolutely. One of them said 110%. And then I kind of volleyed back and said, well, that's interesting. Wouldn't you think it would have been harder back in the day when we didn't know much about leadership at all? We were younger and green, you know, greener, but every one of them stuck to their guns. They said, it is harder today. And that got me thinking, is it because the world is more complex? Is it because of the nuances of our day, the pandemic of our day? And so I began to dig and um, leadership is tough. I don't know if you read, um, Fortune Magazine had a huge article called The Great CEO Exodus of 2020. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of leaders that just left their positions, Caleb. And, uh, And that may not be, you know, rocket science, but um, then, then there were other magazines that came out that was, they were, they were called the great resignation. Team members were resigning. So something's happening that just makes it either not worth it anymore 
or just very difficult. And I'm determined to help leaders step up rather than step back. So that was trigger number one. The second trigger was I began to notice the really, really healthy, effective leaders that I know seem to be balancing these contradictory, uh, well, in the book, I call them paradoxes, contradictory traits that you wouldn't seem to find together in a person. Uh, Like, for instance, paradox number one is I think uncommon leaders are both confident and humble. And isn't it true you often don't see those together? You're a really confident guy, in fact, overconfident, or very humble person, but my God, I don't even know if we're going to make it to the goal because he's so humble. But when you see them together, I think that's what people need today. So I'll stop there. But as I began to dig, I found eight of them, and they've been so fun to study, to find case studies for, and then to say, what do they do that we can translate to our life? Yeah. And just as I was going through the book, one of one of the quotes that you have very early on that stood out to me is that, you know, you write what differentiates uncommon leaders is their ability to read a situation before they lead the situation. And I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that you're looking for whenever you're trying to read a better understand a situation? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. So at once, there's stuff that we all know, the verbal, nonverbal, and paraverbal communication. That would be the words they're saying, the body language, and then the tone. You know, you can say one, say something one way and then say it a different way. It means a completely different thing. I was uh, interviewing one uh, anthropologist and social scientist, and she calls it reading the air, reading the air. So here's a story from her life that really gripped me. She said, I was over in Japan. Uh, she travels internationally. And she said, I was speaking to a group of leaders. And when I got done, I said, all right, any questions? And it was quiet for a moment. And then she said, all right, thank you very much. And she walked off the stage. When she got backstage, her aide, her assistant, who was Japanese said, oh, you should have stayed out there. And she goes, why? I just asked if there were any questions and nobody said anything. He goes, oh, no, 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 watch me. He went out there and put on a clinic. He said, are there any questions, leaders? And he waited for a a, a moment and then said, yes, yes, yes. And there were like several questions. And afterwards she goes, how did you know? And he said, you have to read the air. What he meant by that is there there were cues they were sending. For instance, in the Japanese culture, very often they won't just throw up their hand like we in America do and say, hey, I got a question here. You know, they don't do that but they'll look up at you. They'll just look up at you. Now, we don't think that means anything, but they would go, oh no, that means I'm humbly asking, would you give me permission to, you know, would you honor me with a question? So it, it, I just think in today's world, because our social skills may not be what they once were, we need to be better at reading those nuances. And uh, that's what this book is about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what might be uh, one thing that if you're wanting to improve your situation to read, you know, read the room yes. better, what's one thing that like, hey, you could start doing this today? Wow. Um, you know, here's a phrase I've been practicing for myself this year, even 40 years into my career. I am now working to speak as if I believe I'm right, but to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. Hmm. That's been powerful for me because okay. I tend to, listen as if to say, well, now that tells me what I need to say next. You know, you know what I'm saying, what I'm going to say next. But um, that gives me both confidence and humility. 
I'm confident when I speak, but I need to be humble and say, you know what, Caleb, you might be right about this and not me. And I better listen as if I am a rookie and learning. Oh my gosh, has that liberated me to be a better listener and reader of situations. Yeah. What's helped you do that? Well, I think it's been some speed bumps we've had over the last year. That's certainly one. Most leaders would say this last year has not been an easy one with the pandemic and COVID-19 and so forth. So that's been one. I, I really had to listen. But then I've, I, I think I've had to listen as a white male to um, just to all of the uh, arguments really on both sides of the whole police brutality and racial equality and the Black Lives Matter. I mean, you and I both know that's a thing. Yeah. That is an issue. And, and it was when I was a kid back in the 60s. So I think I'm just realizing now I do know a lot, but I've got a lot to learn. And maybe that's the best way to start any conversation with anybody is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter this as a rookie and just listen, you know, at least yeah. it's been good for me. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned briefly earlier, you know, you were talking about the paradoxes yeah. and everything. And I was just curious, is there any, you know, one or two that is like, hey, these are particularly um, challenging for this moment yeah. right now? Because I know that, you know, at different parts, they're, they're all challenging yeah. at some point. But I was just thinking like, you know, in, you know, fall of 2021, yes. is there anything, yes. any that's, that stand out? Okay. I've got a couple of them, if you don't mind. One yeah. of them is, I believe uncommon leaders balance this paradox. <laughs> they balance their vision and their blind spots. Now those seem like oxymoronic. That cannot go together. But think with me now. All leaders need great vision. Uh, Dr. King said, I have a dream. We needed that dream back then. So you got to have a vision to be a leader. But I, I think the best leaders would look back on their lives and say, I'm so glad I didn't know that was going to happen. I would have never started. And it was a blind spot they had that actually helped them get to their goal. So my case study on that one is Sarah Blakely. Sarah Blakely is the woman that started Spanx, which is that, you know, this, this fashion wear, this, this uh, you know, uh, kind of a hose and girdle thing together. But Sarah yeah. graduated from Florida State, started selling fax machines door to door. Who wants to do that? And realized that she just didn't like the way hose were fitting on her feet and legs. So she cuts them off. She starts creating her shapewear that she started, this industry she started, tried to sell it to um, uh, a, a manufacturer, nobody really bought it because they were all run by men. Men don't understand shapewear, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but finally, this is so funny, Caleb. She finally found a guy, a man who had two daughters that said, dad, you, sh you should get this. You, sh you, sh you should get these. So anyway, she finally creates them. And then what she did was she went straight to one of the executives at Neiman Marcus, a major department store. And she got a 20-minute meeting. That's all she got. So she went up there, met with this female executive, started explaining it. Well, she could tell she just wasn't getting anywhere. This woman had listened to pitches over and over and over and over and over. Everybody wants to sell their product. And so Sarah stood up and said to this executive, would you follow me? And the woman said, where? To the restroom. And she walks into the restroom, tries on her, her Spanx that she just created, sold. So they tried them out in like a dozen stores and, and, and they started selling and blah, blah, blah. 
But the point was, Sarah later was in front of a large crowd doing a Q&A. And the people doing the Q&A said, Sarah, how did you get noticed by a department store at a major um, convention? You know, like, a, a, you, know, you know, those showcase conventions. And she yeah. goes, I never went to a convention. I just went straight to an executive. And she now says, it was my blind spot that actually helped me start my company. Mm. So in the book, I try to say, what, what do rookie smarts do for us? How can we get rookie smarts, even though we're not rookies anymore? I, um, I just had so much fun digging and studying from these great leaders, male and female, different colors, different ages. It was so much fun. But anyway, that would be one. The other one yeah. would be uh, the one I mentioned earlier, confidence and humility. I think in today's very uncertain world on this side of the pandemic, many leaders just don't feel confident. The moment we think we know what we're doing with this vaccine, the mass thing, the the virus itself, then we realize, oh no, the rules have changed. So sometimes confidence is hard, but then sometimes humility is hard because it's so easy to be overconfident and people start going, who do you think you are? Are you smoking something? You know what, you know? So here's what I teach. Here's what I say in that chapter. Our confidence makes our leadership believable, but our humility makes our confidence believable. People see that we're real and we're authentic and we realize we don't have all the answers. So anyway, I'll stop there. But those two really seem to be timely right now anyway. Yeah. What helps you determine, you know, whether it be for the some of the paradoxes that you've already mentioned or even some of the other ones, which way that you need to lean in terms of, you know, confidence or humility or blind spot or vision or anything like that? So you talk about me personally? Uh, just either that you've seen in other people or that you've done yourself to help determine like, hey, I need to lean more towards this side yes. of the paradox than yeah. this side of the paradox. So this was kind of fun. As I wrote the eight paradoxes, and there may be 800, I found eight. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but as I did the eight paradoxes, I did a self-evaluation for each one. I tend to be confident. I mean, maybe overconfident. I, I just feel like we can change the world by noon on Friday. You know, let's do this, you know. Yeah. So I know that I need to continue to remind myself I don't have all the answers. I need to be listening. Uh, one of the one of the paradoxes is I think uncommon leaders are both timely and timeless. So we need to be relevant for the moment we're in, 21st century. But we also need to say there are some timeless principles, values, and virtues we dare not leave behind that our grandparents maybe taught us way back in the day. So. On that one, I think I'm very good on the timeless. I need to remember, I need to stay on the cutting edge of technology because I may not do that left to myself. So it's almost like personality profiles. You know how you, oh, I tend to be extrovert, I tend to be. I think we need to look at these in this book and say, oh, I tend to be that, but not that. What do I need to learn to make sure I'm balancing both sides of the paradox? Yeah, almost like doing like a personal inventory. Yeah, almost. it really is. Uh, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, one of the things that, just as I was going through the book, uh, and I, I wanted to get your take on, but I would just be curious to hear, how do the paradoxes play out in terms of, like, different power dynamics in terms mm, of everything yeah. as well? Because, you know, as, uh, you know, you, if, you're the t if you're the CEO of the company, um, you don't always know the truth or, or things yeah. like that because of the different power dynamics. And I would just love for you to just speak to that a little bit. That is a fantastic question. And I can tell you're a leader yourself because you thought of that question yourself. 
that you're right. It's different in different rooms with different groups and different power dynamics. I learned so many great lessons from Bob Iger. He's my case study, the very first case study in the book. When Bob Iger took over Disney, he had never run an enterprise as large as Disney that sold plush toys and theme parks and movies and animation. That was all new to him. But there he was in charge. So he said, I had to sit down with animators or toy makers or whatever and acknowledge to them, I'm still in learning mode. I need you to download all that you can. I promise to be a quick learn. I'm going to listen to you. But then I promise you, I'll pull the trigger when it's time to pull the trigger. So he had to say, I had to be humble. I couldn't pretend to be something I'm not. And that's it. I think pretend is the problem. Pretend is is the same root as pretense, where we're faking something. And people can smell that a mile away. They can smell when we're not authentic. And by the way, the word authentic is taken from the same root as the word author. It means to author your own life and not copy someone else, not pretend to be someone else. So I think the answer is I need to go in knowing who I am. This is who Tim Elmore, this is who Caleb Mason is. And then say, now I'm willing to learn what I'm not. And if it's Bob or Susan that has the answer, I need to say, Bob, I got to learn from you, buddy. I, I'm, I'm going to, I think we think we're, we're going to lose their respect when we say that. I actually think we gain respect from others because we're willing to admit, I need your help. And who doesn't want to be asked for help? You know, if yeah. our, our guy, three people down on the flow chart, they're saying, oh, sure, boss, you know, but that's going to take us to swallow our ego and say, I need to humble myself here and, and ask some good questions. So, yeah. Is there, is there anything else that's helped you, you know, navigate through the, the power dynamics thing? Because no. it's such, it's such a powerful, like an inhibitor from, you know, from us getting the truth because people might be afraid yeah. of, Hey, they're going to lose their jobs or we're not sure how the boss is going to respond. Uh, and it almost takes like two or three times of maybe the normal effort, maybe even more than that to, yeah. to, to help people believe us in that. It's so true. So my single answer to that question, then I love to play out both sides if you, if you don't mind, yeah. is the art of reverse mentoring. So I talk about this toward the tail end of the book. Reverse mentoring is a practice that Jack Welch came up with way back in the 1990s when computers were new in the workplace. So he, Jack had these 58 or 60-year-old executives that were very comfortable doing things the old way did not feel comfortable with laptops yet, but he had these freshly graduated, you know, college uh, grads, you know, coming into the workplace. They totally love the computer. And so here's what he did. He matched up the senior veteran with the new rookie. And he said, I want you to practice reverse mentoring. And what that meant was share your stories. You're going to find something in common when you share your stories. And then the veteran can share, here's how this place works. I I know I've been here a while, but then I need to hear from you. How could we leverage this technology to better do this work? How could today it might be, how can we leverage that new app to do marketing better? How can we leverage TikTok? You know, well, that 22 year old knows exactly how to do that. So don't you love that? It gives both parties dignity and both feel honored by the other that they listened and both were able to learn. Now, here's what's hard about that. It's going to require us to be willing to take the time to learn from the other. And maybe I need to say, 
I'm sitting down with this personality that speaks a different language, has different customs. It's like a cross-cultural relationship. When I sit down with a 22-year-old, it's like I'm meeting with a foreigner. Only, only they say the same thing. I'm the foreigner. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll stop there. But anyway, I just think we need to, we need to psych ourselves up to work at those relationships, just like we were in another country with another, an, an international that we just don't know. And if we're willing to work, I think we're going to glean a whole bunch. Yeah. And even to your point, like the generational gaps are only getting bigger and we're very different from each other and it's happening faster and faster. So true. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, uh, One of the paradoxes that I wanted to make sure uh, that, you know, that we talked about is that of being a teacher and being a learner as well. And one of the things that you say in there is that the first step toward becoming a learning leader is managing your emotions, which, which isn't something that sounds, it's very counterintuitive, it seems like. Would you mind just unpacking that and why managing emotions is the case for it? Yes. Okay. The reason I put that there was, I believe that's the first task of really being a learner because my first emotional or gut reaction may be to blast back. That's not how we did it back in 1997 or whatever. And I need to say, I need to bite bite my lip and let them finish their thought even though they may be a totally younger, less experienced person that's listening to me right now. So I need, I'm talking about me, I need to manage my emotions to not gaslight or come on too strong and just completely shut them down. This past year, I did that for a young team member and I called to apologize. I had to. I said, I am so sorry. Now, it wasn't horrible, but I know I shut her down because I shared that's not what we do. We that's not that didn't work that way back in 2012. Blah 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 blah. And I said, please don't stop sharing. Don't let me get in your way. <laughs> you know. And she was very gracious and said, absolutely, you're forgiven. But that was hard pill for me to swallow. But I had to manage my emotions and let her talk. So mm-hmm. anyway, that may I may be socially retarded, right? I just may be backwards. But I I just think. I need to manage my emotions better. And when I do, I'm always better for it. Yeah. And I, I would love your take on this. This is what I found in my experience is it, whenever I have an, a, an emotional outburst to something that someone says, it usually is playing on an insecurity yeah. or something yes. of mine. It's so true. Our insecurities come out by our emotions. In fact, my theory is uh, if the emotion I express far outweighs the issue at hand, there's another issue to be faced. I oh, got some, oh, yeah. something else going on inside. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> yes. Yes. The way the way that I say it is, you know, if if you give a dollar to a 10 cent situation, there's probably something more going it's on. So there. True. That was well put. That is so, so true. Absolutely. Uh, um, what's helped you manage your emotions better or keep yourself in check in terms of uh, learning about stuff that that might not be natural to you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I think my answer, I, I hope it's helpful. I think for me, I have to say to myself before I enter a meeting, everyone has some, something to teach me. Every, everyone has something to teach me. And the reason I have to say that is because at 61 years old, this is the 42nd year of my career. I started a little bit early. So I've, it's easy to assume I, I've done it all. I know it all. I've traveled to all 50 states, 50 countries, blah, blah, blah. You can't tell me anything new. And I know that's not true, Caleb. I know it's not. So when I stop and I, I really allow that person who's maybe a young 
whippersnapper, you know, to, to, to share. Um, it, it's just better. So telling myself I've got something to learn from everybody is, is, a, is a big deal. Also telling myself I need to listen twice as much as I talk. So for me, it may not be everybody else's issue. For me, that's helpful. When I go in to listen, I, I'm, of course, I'm going to have some little nugget to drop into the conversation. But um, if I'm listening, I'm going to be much better. Uh, I'm going to be a much better person to add value because I've, I've seen what's really relevant for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, what's something that you've been uh, learning recently, either from your, from your team or from you know, your own personal study or reading or anything like that? Yeah. Well, the, the issue I'm facing right now is one of the eight paradoxes. And it's uncommon leaders balance visibility and invisibility. So I'll give you the case study and then I'll tell you my homework assignment. The case study for that one is Dr. Martin Luther King. In the late 50s and early 60s, he was clearly the leader of the civil rights movement. And he was making speeches and leading marches and getting thrown into prison. He, He got thrown into prison 29 times, some of those times on purpose just to set an example. But by 1963, 64, when the civil rights legislation was beginning to be passed and then the voting rights in 65, he began to realize I need to start being invisible now so these younger guys will step up. You can imagine if Dr. King's in the room, you shut up and listen to that guy. You know, you don't, if you're Jesse Jackson or Andrew Young, you're just saying, I'll just be quiet now. I'm 20 years old. Or, you know, John Lewis was this young guy. So you get the point. So here's why this is huge for me. In my early 60s, as a leader and founder of our organization, Growing Leaders, I'm seeing now that I have been visible, so visible. I'm the, head, I'm the face of our organization. Um, I need to step away from meetings now. I now opted out of our weekly leadership team meeting so other voices will not feel intimidated to speak up and not feel like, oh God, I don't dare, I don't dare take Tim on, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. I'm not, I don't have an overestimation of my own importance, but I just know sometimes my actually not being there will be the best leadership I can offer. Yeah. I know that you're still in the process of, you know, working through that paradox. Yeah. Um, but is there any like guiding things that have helped you determine, hey, it's real like I should be visible here yes. and maybe I should, you know, opt out of this meeting here? Yes. Okay. Some very clear steps for me. One is when I look at those team members and I can see they can say this as well as I in their own way, but they can say it just like I can. They do not need me to say it for 20, the 23rd time. Number two, I realize they're talking about it to others like they own it. In other words, they're not just renting my vision, they're owning the vision. There's a huge difference between renting an apartment and owning a house. Um, And then clearly on my part, I have practiced something I put in this chapter. I call it the big idea. So it spells the word idea, I-D-E-A. If I've offered them instruction on this area that I want them to learn, if I've given them demonstration, that's the letter D. So I've shown them. E, I've let them experience it themselves as I watch. And then A is assessment. We've even taken some time to evaluate and kind of debrief. If I've done those, I need to get out of the way. They're chomping at the bit. And I feel like as I look around the world in so many countries, not all, but many, there's an older generation like me 
that desperately need to let go of the reins to maybe your generation. I mean, you know, I don't know how old you are, but you know, you're coming up and you're going, let me do this. And if we don't let you do it, you're going to go, well, then I'm going to start my own thing because I'm ready and you don't think I'm ready. You know, it's just, it's just something I see way, way, way too often. So that's, mm. that's my, that's my two cents on that question. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. Um, I want to go back to something uh, that you mentioned earlier, one of the paradoxes, which is personally the one that got me thinking the most throughout all of it. And it's what you were saying with being timely and being timeless yeah. right now, because that is, that it feels like such a thing, especially like I'm, I work in the church world yeah. and uh, it's very easy to fall into one or the other yeah. and it's both. And so what I wanted to ask um, for you is how do you manage that tension of honoring, you know, the, yeah. the timeless things or yeah. honoring the past yeah. while striving towards uh, a better a better future yeah. as well? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you remember, my case study on that one was Walt Disney. But here's yeah. the practical application for your listeners that might just be helpful for them. If you remember, I talk about two metaphors in that chapter, swing sets and plumb lines. So a swing set is a picture I hold in my mind when I do this exercise with my leaders. You know that when you were a child and you hopped on a swing set, maybe for the first time, the first thing you said to your parent that was swinging you was, swing me higher, swing me higher, swing me higher. But every parent knows to swing my child higher, I need to pull them backward further. Further back you go, the, the more forward you can go well. I think it's true in planning too. So we got to go backwards if we're going to plan well forwards. So the swing backwards is asking yourself questions like, why was this organization started in the first place? What problems were we trying to solve? What's our heritage? What did we stand for? What was it we know? So you are looking back. Now, have the realities changed today? Probably. But you've got to start with, what are we about? Who are we? Then when you swing forward into the future, 2025, 2030, you can say, are those needs still around or are there new needs? Where do we need to go in the future to be who we are? I think those swing set questions, which I list in the book, are just so helpful for any group or team that's trying to lead well to go through. Now, the plumb line, I, I'm sure you got because you're a, you're a biblical person. If you remember the Old Testament, the, the minor prophets talked about plumb lines. Plumb lines aren't used as much anymore, but back in the day, they were long strings with a weight on the end of the cable or the string. And you could drop them into the water to plumb the depths of the water, see how deep it was. Or you could hold that plumb line up to a wall that had just been built to see if it was crooked. Because when you hold it up, gravity is going to pull that line straight down. And you see, oh, the wall's two inches off at the bottom there. Uh-oh, we're crooked. I think great leaders and great organizations need to say, we need to list what our plumb lines are that will show us when we get crooked. What are our values? What are the behaviors we say that marks who we are? And I, we need to write them down. And we need, to, we need to see them. We need to talk about them. We need to attach behaviors next to those values. I'm telling you, when we came up with plumb lines at Growing Leaders, it has been so good to keep us on track and not deviate. And that's really what you're getting at is how yeah. do we not deviate from what we say we're doing? Boy, we all need plumb lines right now. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, talk to the person because I feel like the the natural tendency in leadership is to focus on more of the more timely stuff and not necessarily the timeless stuff. Yes. It's a, it's a lot of, hey, what happened in the past? Yeah. Maybe it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. We're just focusing on the future. We don't want to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Um, but what would you say to that person to be like, no, the past is actually important. What would you, what, yeah. why would you say the past is so important? Well, I believe in every generation and in every age, there are a handful, not a lot, but a handful of virtues and values that we dare not leave behind. So um, I remember my grandfather way back, oh gosh, well, I, I met him in the 1960s when I was a child, but way back in the 1920s and 30s, he was a disciplined, high work ethic, man of integrity. You know, those things. Now you would agree, yeah. I think, yeah, integrity, yep, that's timeless. Work ethic, yep, yep. better keep discipline. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I would say to a, let's say a teenager that's about ready to graduate, you will need discipline, work ethic, and integrity whatever day you graduate in. So yes, learn what's new, of course. But just know if you leave behind some of those, I don't care what boss you end up working for, they're going to wish they had an honest person instead of a dishonest person, a disciplined person instead of an undisciplined person. You get my point. So um, that's what I probably would say. I think it was JFK that first said, if we do not learn from history, we're, we're destined to repeat that history. You know, that's, that's what we, we just got to make sure we're never leaving behind what we've learned from the past. Yeah. And that's something that I'm sure, you know, even just reading through the book and reading through some of the other stuff and seeing how much uh, case studies and, and student of history that you are, it is amazing when you read throughout history and really it is not super different no. from yeah. today. It's just technology that's different. It's, <laughs> it's so true. Humans are humans and they need some of the same things. They need to be affirmed. They need to be loved. They need to be encouraged. You know, I remember Truett Cathy once said, how do you know if somebody needs encouragement? They're breathing. You know, I mean, that's, that's how we know. So anyway, it's time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one of the quotes that you have uh, in that section is from Angela Arendt. I think I'm saying that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and you quote her from the 2012 leadership, or the leader cast saying, uh, don't get intimidated by the speed of the world. However, the faster we move, the more important it is to remember our values. And then you said, uh, we must recognize that, ex- that exciting doesn't always equal better. Yeah. Expanding does not always equal progress, which again, such a counterintuitive thing yeah. uh, to say. Uh, but a couple of questions that I wanted to ask, and the first one off of that is, how do you keep up with the speed of the world, or even even it, do we want to keep up with the speed yeah, of the yeah. world? Might even be the other question. Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Um, one of the most fascinating books that I read over the last five years is a book called The Inevitable, and it was a book about twelve technological advances that we were making, smart technology, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and and just stuff that's coming down the pike. I got to tell you, Caleb, I'm like you. It was so intriguing. Oh my gosh, it was tantalizing. Oh my gosh, you know, we're going to have not only smart cars and, and, and smart, you know, homes and, and, and smart phones, we're going to have smart clothes. This book talked about smart mm-hmm. clothes where your shirt or your trousers, you can throw them in the washer and it will communicate with the washer. Use cold water, hot water, or warm water. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy cool how smart technology is advancing. However, I believe the virtue we're going to need as we move into this very tantalizing, future is 
our morals. Now, let me tell you why I come to that conclusion. So millenniums ago, uh, it was, we lived in an agricultural age and our biggest separator of, of, of workers was our muscles. You know, the, the more muscles you got, the better farmer you're going to be. Then we moved into, into the industrial age. And now the big differentiator was our machines. Now we got a machine that's doing that work for us. But then we moved into the information age. You and I were both born into the information age where now yeah. it's our minds. Most of us graduate from college and use our minds to do our job. You do your, yeah. your, your you know, yours. Yep. I think we're moving into the intelligence age where smart technology is almost everywhere in automation, where we're going to be able to do things that go way beyond our ethics unless we're ready for them, way beyond our morals and our values. And so I don't think it's muscles, machines, or mind. I think the differentiator is our morals. Do we have a moral compass that says we can do that, but we should not do that? And I know that sounds like an old fogey probably, but haven't we already seen possibilities that we go, oh, I, we dare not go there. We're playing God right now. And um, so that's my, that's, that's my, that's my stump speech yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's a, it's a good question to ask because you think even, uh, you, you take it down a level and you think, um, we all have things in our lives to where it's, well, should I, this, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. should I do this yes. thing yeah. uh, because of pace of, even pace of life? Yeah. <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's so true. Um, three years ago, I was in England and had a um, uh, stunning experience. I, I don't use that word lightly, but um, I got up earlier before my family did. I went to a coffee shop. It was just outside of London. And I overheard a conversation between two gentlemen that were talking about a new coffee shop that was coming up that, that robots served customers. So they like, ooh, that's kind of cool. But I'm not kidding. These two guys were talking about the pros and cons of the fact that these robots offered coffee and sexual favors. And of course, one guy said, oh, that's great. That will remove the need for marriage, you know, whatever. And the other guy goes, no, that's horrible. That's horrible. It's completely ruining the very, you know, sanctity of, you know, well, would you not agree? We need a plumb line on that one. We, we, need, yeah. we need to say there's got to be a compass that we go to and say, this is, this is not right. No matter how much the world gets used to something like this, it's not going to be helping us. So I'll, mm-hmm. uh, that's that, yeah, that's where I'm going with the moral thing. Yeah. I was going to say, and even just to, to add to that point without the plumb line or without yeah. the, uh, the objective thing, then we're just left with you decide what's right for you. And yeah. I decide what's right for me and nobody can say anything. It's, different. It's so true. And we're almost there with some of the polarization going on in our country right now. It's like we can't even have a civil conversation. And that's that's just sad. Yeah. Well, and I and it's even to the thing of um, you know, the, one of the things that I like to think about, and you know, and, I, and we would both probably say, Hey, that objective truth is yeah. found with Jesus and with yeah. God. Yeah. Um, but this is a thing that is just true regardless of whether or not it is yeah. Jesus or God. We would say, hey, that's probably the best option. But we just need that objective yes. plumb line. That's right. That transcendent value that we all agree that's best for us. That's our, mm-hmm. yeah, that's our plumb line. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back and ask this question of you, uh, you know, 
falling into the trap of expanding equals better. How can you tell if like, hey, I am I am falling victim to this idea of bigger equals better or expanding equals better? Yeah. I have come to believe that all growth equals change, but not all change equals growth. So if I'm leading an organization or a church or whatever, I need to decide what's the outcome I'm really shooting for. And, and maybe growth is it, but just to change things up for change sake doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be better. So I need to say, mm-hmm. will these changes lead to? And by the way, Caleb, sometimes we don't know. We, we take a gamble and sometimes our ideas don't work. That's just the human condition. Yeah. But I think when I decided on my outcomes first, I have a much better chance at deciding yay or nay on some of those changes that might be enticing, but they're not necessarily going to lead to reaching more people or if you're a business person, reaching more customers. Um, yeah. So I think out, we need to measure outcomes, not just inputs. We're really good at measuring inputs. That's all the activity we do. Busyness, busyness, busyness. When I start measuring outcomes, now I'm measuring the fruit of my activities. And that's what I think, that's what I think God's after. Yeah. Um, towards the end of the book, you talk about this idea of drafters. Would you mind explaining what that is? Oh, I love this idea. This might be helpful for listeners. Yeah. So, um, there, there were, I I talk about a number of game changers in the book, people that just changed the game of whatever industry they were in. And so Roger Bannister was the very first young man who in 1954 ran a mile in under four minutes. Most people know that story. What they may not know is he was able to do it because he picked two fellow runners, Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher, two guys named Chris, to pace him. One ran for the first half mile and then dropped back. The other one stepped up and ran for the second half mile, but they were drafters for him. And what that means is they ran just in front of him and created a draft, a a wind that pulled him forward. And it wasn't cheating. He didn't hold on to him, but it was just that tiny little draft that enabled him to run the, the, the mile in three minutes and 59 seconds and some change. And he did it for the very first time. Well, now today, over 900 people have run a mile in under four. So he broke open the barrier to do this. But drafters today, and this is the point I make in the book, is who are some people that are a little bit ahead of me in my, in my race, in my you know, my run, my journey that I can look to that maybe I meet with from time to time or read after or listen to or tune into on a podcast or whatever. And I say, they're creating a wind for me to go a little bit faster than if I didn't have them in my life. So you might say, oh, those are mentors. Those are coaches. Maybe you can call them that, but they could also be heroes. Um, They could be accountability partners. They could be mentors. They could be role models. They are a model for the role you want to have one day. So mm-hmm. I am a fan of, I, I have six people in my life right now that are drafters. They are people that in certain categories, they're just ahead of me. I have a writing uh, drafter. I have a communication drafter. I have a leadership drafter. I have a finance drafter that's helping me understand investments. And I'm telling you, I'm better because they're running ahead of me and I'm in their, I'm in their draft. Yeah. Can you tease out some of the things that you've learned this year that have been, you know, major game changers for you from, from your drafters? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So 
Focus is one of them. Uh, I have a focus mentor. And by the way, I'll just share his name. It's Tim Disopolis. He is the president of Chick-fil-A. So um, great man, humble, great man. Um, so Tim is my focus mentor because he is so focused. <laughs> he has his day lined out in 10-minute increments. I mean, it's just, some people would say he's too anal, but I just learned from him. Now, I'm not trying to yeah. be like him in every way, but I meet with him with a tablet of questions. We have breakfast. And I just ask away and all he has to do is eat his scrambled eggs and answer my questions. And it's wonderful. I always am better for it. One of the things Tim has taught me is this. The further out I can see into the future, the better the decision I make today. The further out I can see into the future, the better the decision. And what that simply means is always take the long view. If you make a decision that's going to make you happy tomorrow, but not better next year, it may not be the best decision. It's kind of like pay now, play later, not play now, pay later, you know? Well, you know, you're nodding in agreement right now. I totally agree with that. Boy, that's been a great rule of thumb for me just to help me make better decisions. It's usually better. In fact, I have found if I make a decision that creates a disadvantage for me today, it probably creates an advantage for me later, but vice versa. If I do an advantage for me, ah, Five years from now, I'm paying for it. I shouldn't have eaten all that food or I shouldn't have ceased my exercise or I shouldn't have whatever. So anyway, that's just a great focus rule of thumb for me from Tim Dosopoulos. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about and tease out a couple of questions for is kind of like in the epilogue of the book, you talk about the evolution of leadership styles, yeah. which I, that was my first time hearing about kind of what things might look like in the future. Yeah. Um, would you mind kind of teasing out that? Yeah. So I believe we approach leadership uh, based on who we are, but also based on the culture we're currently living in. So way back in the 1950s, let's say 70 years ago, uh, it was a military commander style, uh, male or female, but it was usually a white male that was leading back then. Yeah. Dwight Eisenhower, JFK. It was a military commander style. Now, not always job, but the style was top-down, black and white, leaders led and followers followed, and never the twain shall meet. Then when we moved to the 60s and 70s, it shifted. The, the most common style shifted to the leader as a CEO. Now, again, these are not jobs. These are styles of or approaches to leadership. The CEO approach is, well, you may not like me as a person because I'm very military in my but I'm casting a vision now and maybe you'll buy into the vision and you'll go with me because you like the vision. So now it's getting beyond the leader and the, the, the dictate of that leader to a vision. By the time we moved into the 1980s, it was a leader as an entrepreneur. By the 1980s, the term cutting edge became a thing. We, taught, we wanted to be cutting edge. In fact, to think about all the technology that was released in the 1980s, Walkmans and, 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 and cell phones and, and microwave ovens and all kinds of things were happening. So we wanted to be innovative. By the 1990s, it was leader as a coach. The most common, appropriate leadership style was, I'm going to be a coach, you're going to be the team, and we're going to play together and collaborate, and all of us are important. But you can see how it's no longer dictatorial. It's more, hey, you're shortstop, I'm second base, you know, let's play together. Mm -hmm. 
by the next decade, I believe it was a leader as a connector because the digital world was upon us in the first decade of the 21st century. And connection was everything. But I'm, I was moving toward where we're moving in the future. And yeah. it's two very strange metaphors, I realize. But it's the leader as a poet gardener. A poet gardener. The poet leader is relevant, I think, because today's leader doesn't just lead by themselves. They have a leadership team. Not just a team of players, a team of leaders. And they're listening as much as they're talking. And they're extrapolating ideas, synthesizing ideas. And then they articulate the idea almost like a poem, a poet who reads the culture and then writes a wonderful poem. And readers go, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how a leader wants their leadership team. to be. You just put into words everything I was thinking and feeling. Thank you for being a wordsmith. So that's the leader poet. And that's what we need today. The leader as a gardener is the person that realizes my primary job isn't just selling products or selling programs, it's developing people. And so they see their primary job as gardening the people under their care, supplying sunshine, that's encouragement, water, you know, and fertilizer, that's nourishment, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I play this out. But yeah. I, I just believe as I look at the landscape of business, ministry, healthcare, education, politics. When I see poet gardeners, they're leading the pack. They are a new kind of leader that I think our world is begging for today. So. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like that could just be a whole podcast in itself of yeah, talking it's about true. It's true. what that could look like. Um, but we don't have time to cover that today, but I did want to ask um, what, what might be one thing for each, for being a poet and being a gardener that like, Hey, this can help you more be be more of that down the path that you're on in your leadership journey. And what might be one thing that each set has to look out for Ooh. as well? Wow. Okay. So for the poet, I would say, um, well, it did. It does begin with listening. There's that that task again. It begins yeah. with listening because I think great poets are great poets because they they read the culture around them and they're able to put into words. And we would go, oh my gosh, what a great poem. Well, it wasn't a great poem because it rhymed well, although it probably <laughs> does. It's a great poem because it's so captured our hearts. Leaders need to capture the hearts of the people. So we need to listen and then start putting into words. And it starts with practice. We're not going to be brilliant immediately, but listening and then putting into words the thoughts that we're hearing. The, the gardener thing is this. I think all of our people around us, if we're a leader, needs both professional development and personal development. So as leaders, we need to be saying, what can I, what's one thing I can do to develop that team member to do better on their job? But then what's one thing I can do that helps them just be better as a person? Uh, like reading two books a month or going to a conference twice a year or whatever. Those are the kinds of gardener tasks that I think people are drawn to and will stick with loyally because they don't get that everywhere. Yeah. Well, I know that there's there's a lot more to cover in the book, but is there anything that comes to mind that you just want to make sure that we talk about um, before we end our conversation today? I would just say to listeners, try to avoid the either or perspective. 
that it's got to be one or the other. It's black or white, Democrat or Republican, red or, you know, you know, you, we've all heard this. These paradoxes are proof that when we actually put two ironic traits together, it creates this very amazing, dare I say, Christ-like leader. Jesus was confident and humble. Jesus was visible and invisible. You can go through the gospels and say, oh my gosh, our savior did this. Well, hello, he's the greatest leader that's ever lived. So um, I would just say that to listeners, try to avoid the either or, the black and white, the, the, the oversimplifying of life and realize sometimes the answer's in the middle and sometimes they gotta be both confident and humble at the very same time. Yeah. Well, Tim, I know that people are going to want to continue to connect with you and growing leaders as well and get the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? Yeah, sure. To get the book, I mean, you can certainly go on Amazon and so forth, but we have a special deal on my website. There's a whole bunch of free stuff, including video courses, sample chapter. So if you just went to the website, timelmore.com slash book timelmore.com slash book. You'll get right to that page and you can sign up for all the free stuff and get the book. But Growing Leaders is the organization that I started about the next generation of leaders. And that's where we talk a lot about generations. And you could certainly pick it up there too. But those would be the best places to find me and the, and the blogs that I do. So thanks for asking though, Caleb. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast and thanks so much for doing the work of just putting the content together and releasing the book. My pleasure. Great to be with you. And hopefully we can talk again. I think coming out of that conversation with Tim, there's two things that come to mind for it. One is just the idea of situational leadership and realizing that um, situational leadership means that you change your leadership based on the situation and not to people please people, but you do it based on what's required of the situation in the manner. And so in in some cases, it means being more of that learner that he was talking about. In other cases, it means being more of the visionary in it and, and being the the teacher as well, or being the teacher in it. And in some cases, you know, one of the things that I uh, learned from a guy named Kevin West is he he would talk about the one-minute manager and situational leadership. And that in some cases of discerning, when people need direction and when people need support and learning that different people require different responses as well. And that's not easy, but that's part of the price of leadership is that it's not easy. It's not easy. Like it requires us learning about people. It requires us learning what the best response is to this person and what's going to, um, how to best help this person. And I know that sometimes it feels a little bit wishy-washy or maybe it feels like a little too, you know, like lovey-dovey or I don't even know if that's the right word to it. But the best leaders figure out the way to get best, to get the best out of their team. And it's not the same for everybody. And sometimes people need coaching and sometimes they need encouragement. And it's, and it's so different. But that's one of the reasons why I love learning from Tim is because he dives into the messiness of it and the tension and, and just trying to figure out those questions about it as well. And then I think the other thing, and you know, we talked about it a lot, and I'm not going to talk about it uh, a ton here because I think I'm going to end up doing a podcast uh, 
a podcast episode about it, just kind of laying out some of my further thoughts on it. But what he talked about in the changing leadership styles and how we might be more of a time that is in that that poet leader that he was talking about or, or the gardener leader as well and exploring what that looks like. And so that's something that I'm thinking about right now. And as I mentioned, um, there, there will be an episode sometime here uh, that dives into that. And dives into what does what does it mean to be a poet leader? What does it mean to be a gardener leader as well? And fleshing all of that stuff out also. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking about in regards to all of this episode and everything. So if you listen to this episode and you're like, man, that was really good. I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is through this email address, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Whether it's a guest that you have a suggestion that we bring on or a um, or a book or a resource that you would love us to cover on the podcast. You can reach me at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you've been listening to the episode for a while, or if you haven't been listening to, an op- <laughs> to the episode for a while, and this happens to be your first time listening, um, I would appreciate it if you subscribed or followed to the podcast or left a rating and write a review. That would mean a lot. It helps us spread the word about the podcast as well. And yeah, I think uh, that's all that I have for today. I do want to give a couple of quick shout outs. And I'm going to say thanks to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey, who does the, who created the music for this podcast. Also, third shout out. Thank you to Todd Hicksonbaugh, who's helping me run uh, social media and trying to figure out stuff like that and what we can do and everything. So Todd, original co-host of the Learner's Corner podcast. And now now he's back helping me learn social media or helping me do social media. And so thankful to all of them. Thanks again to Tim for being on the podcast. And finally, thank you to the listener, as you know, for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. And I think that's all that I have for today. So until next time, my name, well, actually not until next time. My name is always Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.